Welcome to the Human Conversation Podcast with Jules White, the real dragon slayer, author and entrepreneur sales coach. Tune in weekly for human conversation about business and sales. Enjoy business expert interviews, educational episodes and virtual cuppers with entrepreneur business owners. So grab yourself a cuppa and enjoy. Here is your host, Jules White. conversation. So today's guest is the very inspiring Kevin Gaskell. So Kevin is actually recognised as one of the outstanding leaders of his generation. He's an expert in leading teams and businesses from adversity to success. Known as a corporate trailblazer, a serial entrepreneur and a world-class team builder. He is renowned for leading iconic brands such as Porsche, Lamborghini and BMW to record results. He has founded and created international businesses and led established companies to new levels of success. He's worked with companies from 7 to 7,000 employees and together they have created over 3 billion in shareholder value and won awards at national and global levels. He was an international cricketer, we're going to hear more about that, who has walked unsupported to both the North and South Poles and climbed the world's highest mountains. To relax, He likes to play guitar in a rock band, which we didn't get to talk about today, but maybe a second human conversation, we may reveal more about that for you. In January 2020, he set a new world record for rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. He believes that ordinary people can achieve extraordinary results, and he has the experience to prove that. Kevin, quite honestly, is truly inspirational and I hope you're going to find this human conversation proves that to all of you too. And here is my human conversation with Kevin Gaskell. So after all that wonderful introduction, Kevin, welcome to the human conversation. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to have you here. I am uh, a little bit starstruck, if I'm really honest, because I do like to be honest about things. I know you might look like that. I know people who are not watching on YouTube won't have seen your expression there, but I am in awe of the things that you've done. And it was difficult to know where I wanted to start on this human conversation. But I want to just mention a few things I feel like I have in common with you. So the first thing I want to say to you is um, I sold Recaro car seats. Did you? Very good. (laughs) So um, that was um, a factory actually that came to the UK uh, for the first time because they were German. um, And it was their first factory in Birmingham in the UK. Um, Okay. We were assembling the base of the Recaro car seat. And I was actually um, in accounts, but then getting involved in kind of the sales side of things as we were coming out. I did things like the motor show. So that was exciting. So there's the connection with your Porsche, Lamborghini and BMW um, journeys. Well, a lot of people won't realise that that Recaro actually make a lot of the seats for car manufacturers, which car manufacturers don't put the Recaro badge on. So 
Ricaro make fabulous product. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, isn't it? I think the petrol heads probably know about Recaro car seats, but they're not always badged, as you say. So, you know, this whole Porsche, Lamborghini, BMW journey, um, I've mm -hmm. listened to the story on many of your podcasts, and I don't want it to take up all of our conversation in some respects, but I do want to acknowledge what an amazing journey that was. Tell me a little bit of the really important lessons from that journey that our, our listeners may be interested in, Kevin. Sure. Well, ooh, where to start? So, <laughs> so <laughs> by training, I'm an engineer and then I studied accountancy and I joined Porsche um, at the age of 27 as a, basically as a regional manager, helping the dealerships to run a more effective business and helping Porsche to run a more effective business. Um, and so I was kind of the interface between the operational side and the finance side. And it's a job I enjoyed very much. And over the next five years, I, I grew in responsibility, found myself responsible for pretty much all of the operations. And then Porsche hit a, 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 an economic um, recession and got itself in terrible trouble. Um, some of it homemade. Uh, the business didn't have a strategy. The, the business didn't have... Um, a new product strategy and very quickly got into severe difficulties and the Porsche business at that point was owned by two families which is the Porsche family and the Pieck family and they're cousins they're both the, the um, they both come from the children of Ferdinand Pieck uh, so the board came across to the UK and they fired effectively the UK board and then asked to see me and um, I phoned my wife and I said, I'll be home in a minute. And she said, why? I said, well, I'm just about to get fired. Why are you going to get fired? Well, the business is in trouble. They fired everybody else. I'm kind of next in line. I'm not a director, but I'm running a piece of the business. So I'm fully expecting to get the boot. And so I was invited in to meet the Porsche and the PX family. Very intimidating. I mean, these, you know, these are the scions of the world motor, motor industry. Um, and they started giving me a hard time and I thought, I'll oh, blow this. Um, and so I said to them, you know, you should be embarrassed. You know, don't give me a hard time. I'm, I'm not running this business. I'm an operations manager, but you should be embarrassed because this business, as far as I can see, doesn't have a strategy, doesn't know where it's going and has got itself into trouble. And, and I went in there expecting a 10 minute conversation. And that turned into a four hour discussion about what could be possible. And then they asked me to leave the room. I left the room, I came back in 10 minutes later at their invitation and I said, right, we've made our decision. You're the new managing director. I said, me, I'm 32 years old. I'm as green as grass. Yeah, that's the plan, the one we've discussed. You're the managing director, make it happen. And that's what we did. Um, so for the next five years, um, we rebuilt the business. We, we didn't rebuild the team because I didn't change anybody. I put people in new positions, but I didn't go out and recruit um, external parties what was clear to me was that people are extraordinary and if I could create the culture and create the atmosphere for my team to become extraordinary then that's what we would be and so the lesson from Porsche was set your goal and, and the question was what should that goal be and when we looked at ourselves um, out of 32 brands in the marketplace 
in terms of customer satisfaction, we were number 32. We were Porsche, we were the bottom brand. And so we had a conversation at the board level, our new board, um, all of us looking at each other thinking, are we really the board of this company now? You know, we're all shell-shocked by this. And we decided that we should be number one. We are Porsche, we should provide the best customer experience in the world. Forget product for a minute, create customer experience. And that's what we set our stall out to do. Um, we simplified the business. We took it from 13 divisions down to five. We gave a lot of authority to people who were bright with ideas. Um, and we changed the world. And, and we did it in the most innocent, um, enthusiastic way possible. We didn't spend money because we didn't have any. Um, we, we talked to our customers. We met our customers. We invited our customers to come and meet us. I met, I joke that I met every journalist in the UK, in the UK automotive industry. And, and I pretty much did because I had lots of cars. I had, I had three years unsold car inventory, new cars sitting around. So what do you do with them? Well, you can sell them to customers, but nobody wants one. You know, it's like diamonds. If somebody, somebody discovered tomorrow that Everest was made of diamond, nobody would be giving their girlfriends a diamond ring as an engagement gift because nobody would want it. Because look, it's bountiful. Well, when you could buy a Porsche because they were bountiful, people don't want them. It has to be a, a scarcity, a rarity, a respect. And so we had to build that back. And um, I thought, right, but all of these cars, what can I do? And I would, I would call up at all the, you know, all the major journalists, of course, we were very friendly with. Um, and Clarkson and I were kind of good friends and, and rivals at the same time. He used to say some funny things about our brand and we used to argue about it. Um, but more importantly, I wanted to change the mindset of the whole of the country. And so I would call somebody from, I don't know, the Middlesbrough Gazette. And I'd call the motoring journalist and say, hi, this is Kevin Gaskell here. Oh, Kevin who? Oh, hello, I'm the managing director of Porsche. Sorry, you're what? I'm the managing director of Porsche. Why are you calling me? Well, when was the last time you drove a Porsche? Well, I've never driven a Porsche. Well, would you like to? Yeah. What's the catch? What's the catch? Yeah. And I said, well, there isn't really a catch. I said, the deal is this. I will deliver to you a new 911. You can drive it for a week. You write about it. But then the deal is this. You have to drive it back to head office and you have to have lunch with me or a cup of tea with me. And I will tell you about the brand. And they said, are you serious? I said, yeah, sure. And so we deliver the car. Journalists all over the country would get cars. I mean, in a, you know, in a properly organized manner. And then they would come to head office and they would spend a couple of hours with me. And I would tell them about why the brand is so great, why the product is so great. I'd show them things in the workshop. I'd explain the passion we have. I'd walk them around, introduce them to the team. And gradually, 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 we reset the market's understanding that this was a fantastic brand with a great heritage and we're enthusiastic. Mm. And so we really used our own enthusiasm and our own knowledge to transform that business. And so you know, people say it was a marvelous turnaround. We went from number 32 to number one and we stayed at number one for two years and then I left the business and I, I kind of stopped measuring at that point. Yeah. But we just had a lot of fun and we created just the most astonishing team. And you know, still today, that's some time ago now, but still today, I talk to those people, I see those people. I went into Porsche 
a couple of years ago to do some filming for a TV program. And people were coming out and said, hey, do you remember when? And you know, Jules, the funny thing is, they said, do you remember when life was tough? Do you remember when we had to fight? They don't say, do you remember when we were number one? Everything was great. They said, do you remember when we had to find a way to do this with no money? Do you remember when we were here late at night? Do you remember when? And that was what forged the team, working together under very difficult circumstances. So that was my biggest learning from Porsche, that you can achieve anything, that people are extraordinary if you give them a chance to contribute. I think what's really interesting in that is that the people who had those memories were the memories from the hard times. And that's yes. something that they had good memories from that, if that makes sense. You know, yes. they saw that as a time, albeit challenging, it was actually uh, quite inspiring by the sounds of it, that they remember it that way. Yeah. Yeah, they gave me a, when I left, they gave me, it's here on my desk, a paper knife. And um, the logo that they engraved on it, here we go, paper knife, is the strongest bonds are forged under the greatest pressure. And, you know, I use that every day. Um, and that's the truth of it. You know, when, when people come together as a team with a shared objective, then I say dare to dream. Yeah. What could be possible? And, and you know, I'll, I'll talk about BMW in a minute, but I spent the last 25 years of my life turning around businesses, creating businesses, helping teams to grow. When, when you know, people think they're in a difficult situation, well, they are, but it's not, it's not the end. Guys, this is the beginning. You've got to be in a difficult situation in order to improve. You know, you've got to realize that your current situation can be improved, before you set out to improve. And so I, I'm enjoying helping companies and teams grow and develop. And you know, the COVID crisis is a classic because a lot of companies are suddenly under a huge amount of pressure. And, and if, if, if the leadership team's not ready for it, they can kind of implode and fall over and, and you know, not know where to go. Well, I've spent 25 years fixing those businesses. So I'll go in and work with them and help them to realize, turn this from fear to excitement. You know, the, as somebody said, the, the, the piece of the brain that's affected by fear and by excitement is the same piece of the brain, the same bit. So, so let's, let's look at it the other way. Same, two sides of the same coin. Let's look at it as an opportunity, an exciting opportunity to improve. Yeah. And so it's shifting that mindset. And that's what I do now. I help people to change their mindset and then build their business. I love so, so yeah, so I look, I went from Porsche to BMW. Um, along the way, we bought Lamborghini, we bought the company. Uh, it was in a terrible mess. Um, I bought that whilst I was running Porsche. So we brought that into the Porsche business. I mean, separate brands, but the same operational entity. And, and that was the same thing, really. People were, were disillusioned, the, the, the employees were disillusioned, the customers were disillusioned. And so we, we turned that around and you know, Lamborghini cars are all about passion, Italian passion. They're, they're extraordinary cars, they're crazy cars, but it's passion. Nobody needs a Lamborghini. You don't need a Lamborghini to go shopping. So you buy them for a different reason. Yeah. So we put the magic back into that business and, and that, that started to fly. And then BMW knocked on the door. And BMW have gone through their own changes. They bought Rover, they've done this, they've done that, they've done the other. 
and um, they needed a new managing director. And so literally they knocked, they came to Porsche and knocked on the door and said, we want to see Mr. Gaskell. Literally walked into the building and said, we want to see Mr. Gaskell. And, and, and I didn't know who this guy was. And he was the global sales director of BMW. Um, and uh, so we sat and had a cup of coffee. And he said, look, I'm looking for a new managing director. And I've been told you're the guy. Would you like to do it? And I said to him, look, if you told me the interview was in Munich and that I have to walk there, I'd ask you for 10 minutes to change my shoes. Does that tell you how interested I am? And he said, great. So we went to Munich. I didn't actually walk there. Um, and I was interviewed uh, for, oh, blimey, I think it was there two days. And the, the BMW head office, they call it the four-cylinder building. It's, it's, it's a tall skyscraper, it's four round um, blocks. And every time I got in the lift, I went up another floor, up another two floors. And I thought, well, as, as long as I keep going up, because right. I knew that Ben Pichard's who was the boss, was on the top floor. So I reckon as, as long as I kept going up, um, that was positive. Yeah. And I, I met Ben and he said, um, they tell me I should employ you to run the business. And I said, I would be delighted. He said, good, consider yourself employed. And, and that was it. It was as short as that. Amazing. And then, so with that business, you know, much, much bigger business, we turned over tens of billions. It was a big business. Um, 7,000 employees for me. Um, but again, it was it was about saying, what could we be? Because BMW had been hugely successful and was hugely successful. But when I looked at the plan that they had for the future, it wasn't exciting. I didn't think it was exciting. And what was clear was that Audi and Jaguar and, and um, Toyota and Lexus, you know, everybody wanted our customers. And so we had to move ahead. And so it did really the same as I did at Porsche, which was, what do we want to be when we grow up? You know, what does success look like? And we talked about that vision of success and we, we looked at it and we described it and we painted a picture of it. And this is what we'll be like. But then we realized we had to learn elsewhere. We were compared with the motor industry. See, we're already very good, but there are other industries out there who provided a better level of customer care or a better level of logistical support or whatever it was. So we made it our business to go out and see them. So we went out to airlines, we went out to five-star hotels, we went out to technology businesses, we went out and with, my, with the management team and said, we want to come and learn from you. We'll show you what we've got, you show us what you've got. And so we learned all of these lessons from, I don't know, 10, 20 different businesses. And we, we took those lessons back into our business and we transformed the way we run our business by utilizing their ideas and, and some of their technology and their approach. And it really moved us on greatly. And we went from growing at 4% um, per annum to in the four years I ran the business, we grew at 80%, eight zero percent And we grew operating profit by 500%. And my parent company, my parent board, you know, German. And, and <laughs> my boss, great guy, fantastic guy. Got an IQ of 175 when he was asleep, you know, extraordinary guy. But he's a German engineer and he thought in square boxes, beautiful square boxes, wonderful square boxes. And I was doing this crazy stuff. You know, we were daring to dream about what we could try and what we could change, what we could develop. And he got quite nervous about it. 
And I, I had to learn to explain it to him in square boxes. Yeah. And, and then once he saw the results were coming through, he was the biggest supporter in the world. Um, but, you know, the lesson there was about communication because oh, yeah. I had to carry 7,000 people on the journey. Yeah. And, and I believe you don't, you don't build a business, you don't improve a business by talking about, you know, give me another 2% return on sales or another 3% market share. That's not what turns people on. What turns people on is being invited to come on a journey to create something that's extraordinary. Let's go and build something that's incredible. Let's go and build a new world. And then we can all look back on it and say, hey, look what we did. And, and you know what? The, the, the phrase I use is, Sorry, I don't the phrase I use is, get better and bigger will come. Yeah. So, so I believe you invite people on a journey. You make it incredible. You make the, the, um, you make each day exciting, and then we get better. And if we get better, bigger will come. Yeah. And bigger is what people measure. But that's not what that's not what creates a great company. No, and and you know I have the same philosophy in sales. Um, as I know we were talking just before I started to record the podcast and. One of the things I did when I'd followed you and seen some of your stuff is I did the Dare to Dream and I said, Kevin, if I send you my book, will you read it? <laughs> and you yeah. said, yes. <laughs> so I sent you my book. And, and I read it. And that's lovely that, that you've read it, but um, equally you'll know from that that that's completely my philosophy around sales. You know, it's yes. not about targets and pushing to that number all the time because in that you lose your focus on who your customer is and why you're serving them, you know. Um, so it's really, we're, we're aligned, I think, in that respect of how we see things and how we think. I want to just tell you that I am reading your book now. Oh, right, great. On YouTube, you can see I'm holding Kevin's book up. It's called Inspired Leadership. Now, Kevin, I'm not a big reader. I like audio books. I'm lazy, so I like mm -hmm. to listen as I'm doing stuff. But I've actually sat and I'm halfway through this book now, and it's, it's really great and it's inspiring. And that's not just because you're on my podcast. But there's a little bit that I've just read which... I really, really liked and resonated with, and I want to just talk to you about it because you talk about belief, you talk yeah. about inspired leadership, and you talk about belief, and you, you put four things that I, I thought was really interesting. Belief is given, not demanded, okay, which I loved. I thought that was so important. Um, belief is about the future. So mm -hmm. actually, we get quite stuck in the past and the now. Whilst it's great to live in the now, we sort of get stuck in that, but beliefs about what's to come you've talked about that already on the podcast belief needs validation is another thing that you talked about and then integrity inspires belief mm -hmm. I love this so much because this is such a human conversation isn't it so you've been into companies where the yacht company for instance i'll just yep. here that you went into a company you needed to come into and actually create trust and belief yeah it was a you know it's, it's fairline boats which was which was one of the big three luxury boat manufacturers in the uk you have fairline sunseeker and princess they're the big three um and boat business is a is a notoriously tough business to make money in 
Um, I, I didn't know anything about it. I was invited by the banks who had ended up owning this company. And banks don't like to own companies. They certainly don't like to run companies. Bankers are bankers. They're not, they're not business operators. Um, and they'd ended up owning this business. And, and the chap who was responsible for the division that owned the business knew me from a, a, another example where I'd turned around a company. And so he contacted me and said, Kevin, look, we've got this company, Fairline Boats. We think it's kind of like Porsche because it sells very expensive product. I mean, the, the boats were started at 600,000 pounds and went up to about 6 million pounds. Um, it's a very exclusive client base. It's a global company, uh, but it's lost money for 10 years. We own it. It, it. Metaphorically speaking, it's sinking beneath the waves. And he said, and, and it would be such a shame. He said, because I think it could be saved. Would you have a look at it? And so I said, yeah, I'll have a look at it. And I went in and I did a review of the business um, for a week. And I went back to this guy's called John. I went back to John and said, look, I think this business can be saved. Um, you know, do you want me to come in as a consultant? And he said, well, actually, no, because uh, somebody bought the business over the weekend, a private equity firm bought the business. He said, but we need somebody on the board. Will you be our man on the board? So I said, yeah, I'll be a man on the board. It's an interesting company. And so for a year or so, I was on the board, but I could see that they weren't getting to grips with it. And I could see that the team in the business, I mean, I went there once a month for a board meeting, but I could feel that the team were losing belief. Come back to your word, belief. They were losing belief. And they were afraid because the business had been through 13 rounds of redundancy. And it was just ugly. It was just not a nice atmosphere. And, and I recommended to the board that they needed to change the leadership. The guy who was running the business, heck of a nice guy, but he told everybody he wanted to be a maths lecturer at a university. Well, then go and be a maths lecturer at a university because you're probably really, really good at that. You're not good at running this business. That's the reality of it. Um, so he left and I thought, right, we need to look for a new CEO. So I carried on doing my thing and I had a call. I was not the chairman. There's another guy who was the chairman. I called from the chairman. He said, can we meet up a cup of tea, which we did. And he said, we found, we've decided who we want to be CEO. And I said, great. Do I know them? And he laughed. They said, it's you. And I said, I said, Peter, look, I'm busy as chairman of four other companies. I'm, you know, I'm already working a 45 hour week. And that's before I do the speaking and my books and, and other stuff. I said, well, we really want you to do it. And so I went away and I thought about it and I thought, yeah, we could fix this company. And so I decided to do it. I moved there. It was, I had to move up country. Um, so I was there five days a week, full-time job, but this is where it starts. So remember what I said, if you're in a difficult position, don't look at that as the end. You look at that as a beginning. That's, that's the beginning point. And that's exciting because look what we could create. And so a week in, I got all of the staff together and I, I expected to stand up and introduce myself for 15 minutes in a working factory, big factory with big boats, with lots of men. I think there were probably two ladies in the whole company, lots of men and a lot of aggression. They were afraid for their jobs. They were very proud of what they had done previously. Three, there were three generations working in this business. You had father, son and grandson still working in a business. So a lot of pride. 
and I, I stood up for 15 minutes to introduce myself and I was still on my feet an hour and a half later and I got so much abuse um, from the team which wasn't directed at me it was directed at their it was their frustration that nobody would listen to them and uh, previous management had come in and just told them what to do and so I said well I'll listen and so I stood there and I listened and I heard their frustrations and then overnight they, they went home then end of shift they went home I got the finance director and the production director with me and we went and we worked out a plan of things we could do immediately and I mean immediately um, so when the lads came back on shift at eight o'clock in the morning we'd already set up a projector in the main manufacturing hall and a PA system we'd been in since I don't know when five o'clock a PA system and the whole thing and we were waiting for them and they said what are you doing here and we said you asked us some questions yesterday you told us what you were frustrated with we're here to tell you what we'll do about it we've spent the night working on it and we, the truth is we spent till about half past 10 and we had a quick pint and went home because it wasn't it wasn't that complicated the, the things were not that complicated so we presented back to them um, and they listened and they were hugely grateful that we had responded and we said, and this is it now. Now we work together as a team and that's what we did. And we transformed that business with belief. We transformed that business with human interaction. You know, when the head of the uh, union, it was a unionized business, told me he'd never been to head office. I said, you've never been to head office. Nope. Head office was 75 yards away. He'd never been there. I said, okay. So, right. So that was immediately my number one. How do I get him in? So we turned the boardroom into a meeting room and said to the union, listen, instead of sitting in the, in the canteen, having your meeting, come in and use the boardroom, come in and we'll, we'll, we'll give you tea and sandwiches and stuff, you know, soft, soft soak them a little bit, but they came in and that was, then we could, we could engage and we put the plans up on the wall and we discussed the plans with them. So gradually they realized that we're all on the same team, 14 months from 10 years of losses back into profit in 14 months. Mm. And, um, you know, it was, it was great. It was just great fun to work with these people. Yeah. And I, you know, I love that we've talked about the business side of all of this because it's clearly where your forte is and you, you just have a wonderful vision of this and it's human. Now we can't have a human conversation without talking about Kevin. <laughs> That's really important. Um, so I've got international cricketer, Okay, so um, I played national mixed hockey. There you go. Great. The best I can come up with. Great. <laughs> Which is a bit feeble. So oh, hockey is one of the toughest games out there. I mean, honestly, I last about 10 minutes and then I'm, I'm gasping. I've, I haven't played much hockey, but the games I've played, it's hard work. It's hard, isn't it? But what yeah. an amazing game. I love it so much. Yeah. And I had to retire at about 32 years old with a knee injury, sadly, because we were AstroTurf three, four times a week. So mm, you very fast. How hard it was on the yeah. old knees. Um, but international cricketer, come on, tell us, Kevin. What was that? Tell us about that. Well, I... I always played cricket. My dad played cricket. So I played cricket with my dad and played in the local village side and then move up to a, a stronger side. And then and you get picked for the um, representative team for the local schools for, for the County. And then you get picked. I went to school in North Wales and then you get picked for North Wales and then you get picked for Wales. 
and and you know this comes back to this thing about belief again i didn't go to a posh school i went to the local comprehensive school and because of that it you it was quite challenging to get picked for the representative teams because the selectors were typically the schoolmasters from the local public schools and so they would inevitably select their own team their own staff their, their own pupils <clears throat> and i got a bit fed up of this and i heard that the trial was on for the for the national team and i was playing for north wales and and so it was a trial a selected number of people from north wales and south wales were put together and invited to play a match uh, and i wasn't invited and and i looked at who was invited and they were all the kids from the posh schools and it kind of grated with me so i thought right i'm going anyway <laughs> so i went to this game anyway and i turned up and they said what are you doing here and i said well you know it's a trial and i play for north wales and i'd be grateful if you'd give me the opportunity um, to show you what i can do and they said well you weren't invited i said no but and i remember the one guy who said we'll give you the opportunity We'll give you the, and I was a quick bowler and you know I was bowling at, at 75 80 miles an hour when I was 17 so I was a quick bowler I'm a big lad I'm six foot three and um, I used to frighten batsmen and anyway so they they invited me to bowl they gave me four overs and I can still tell you today the what what the um, what the score was I bowled four overs two maidens two for four two wickets for four runs that was my four overs okay. and I got picked Lovely. and um, you know it would have been easy much easier not to go I was embarrassed because there's a funny thing you know my children bless them have been a private education because I said I will never put my kids through the education I went through I went to a very rough comprehensive school it was rough tough you know there were fires in the classrooms and teachers got thumped and it was tough it was a you know it wasn't a comfortable experience makes you makes you tougher yourself but i thought i'm not putting my kids through that so i watched my children grow and their confidence because of that education their confidence is is greater and i never had that confidence and, and i've had to give that to myself as i've as i've grown and and part of that is what is it fake it till you make it yeah. pretend you've got the confidence yeah. and, and you know each point in your life and I say this now to young people at each point in your life when you doubt that you have the ability to go to the next level fine doubt then park the doubt do it anyway yeah feel the fear yeah. and do it anyway yeah that absolutely I mean I left school at 16 Kevin and yeah uh, same I went to a comprehensive school I had the board rubber thrown at me a few times, yeah. and, you know, stuff like that. And yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't PC at all. But I left at 16 because I just didn't like academia. I wanted to work. I wanted to earn money. I wanted to drive at 17. I wanted to buy a car, you know. So I was always that way. And I absolutely faked it till I made it at times, you know. And it did make me who I am today. But, of course, if you can give great environment instead then I think that's definitely a preference isn't it you know my son goes to a good school it's not private but he's he's at a really good school so I'm I'm really happy with that opportunity for him yeah 
we could talk about schools blimey get me on that subject but um, i want to stay with kevin okay so uh, let's not deter from that um north and south poles i have written here on my notes yes well <laughs> well i grew up in north wales as i as i've said and so from early days weekends would be in the mountains so i did a lot of climbing a lot of walking but a lot of outdoor stuff canoeing anything that was outdoorsy um and i and i've i i've I kind of done those things all my life really um and I, and I remember when i got to 40 and I, and I thought what shall i do and i thought i know what i'll do i'll go i'll go to everest and so you know we've climbed other mountains let's go and have a look at that one i went to everest i didn't get to the top but i, I went had a look at what it was like and you know it's all very weather dependent but truthfully i didn't enjoy it because it it wasn't when i go to the outdoors i go to the outdoors to be in the outdoors i don't go to be with 300 other people all on a rope all trying to get to the top of this particular mountain and and for me there's no fun in that mm. so i went i saw it I, I wouldn't do it again i wouldn't go back um but you know i've climbed big mountains i've climbed a number of the seven summits around the world and, and a number of other mountains and and loved them and I climb them frequently, mostly, always these days with my son. Uh, and we, we have a little phrase of people alert. People alert. If we see anybody else, we think it's a disaster. We don't want to see anybody. Yeah, I know. Um, so, so we go for the outdoors. And then the North Pole came about because a very good friend of mine is a guy called Pete Goss. And Pete is a single-handed round-the-world sailor. And I'd sponsored Pete when I was at BMW and got to know him. Amazing guy, incredible guy, super lovely, lovely man. And he built the world's biggest catamaran. Oh, blimey, it's 20 years ago now, but he built this amazing Team Phillips catamaran and it, it broke up on its, on its maiden voyage. But Pete's an extraordinary guy, dare to dream. That's his motto. Yeah. And he said, Kev, I'm thinking of sailing to the North Pole. Now, for those who don't know, the North Pole is just a frozen ocean. It's, it's three meters of ice on top of 3,000 meters of water. And I said, well, how are you going to do that, Pete? Are you going to wait for it to melt? He said, no, 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 I'm going to build a land yacht. He said, but I've got to walk there first to understand what the, what the terrain is like. So I'm, I'm putting a team together. Do you want to come? I said, I'd love to. So we put this team together and we walked to the North Pole. Um, uh, with a with a guide, a guy called Alan Chambers, Alan Chambers MBE, fantastic polar guide, and we went to the North Pole, and it was just the most wonderful experience. Uh, and then, well, if you've done one, you might as well do the other. The other, yeah. Yeah. So I came back and and uh, over dinner one night announced to my family, well, we loved the North Pole, but I'm going to go to the South Pole now. And this is when my son was about 17, and he said, "Well, you're not going without me this time." And he hadn't come to North Pole, he's just too young, just, just, but he was 18 when we set off for the South Pole, he was 18. So we walked to the South Pole together and that was great for, that was a really tough expedition. So how, dif how different are they when, when you compare the two trips? Well, the, the North Pole is, you're, you're fighting with the ice that's moving around. Yeah, I saw so that you can, about the, um, the runway or something, the way they make Yeah, yeah the runway is, the runway is just cut once a year. That's in the book, isn't it? People yeah, yeah. They drop a bulldozer out of an aeroplane, 
on a parachute and cut a run a, a strip so they can land the aeroplane. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Amazing. So, so the North Pole is, is about the moving ice because you can find yourself on a piece of ice as, you know, as big as your house or as big as the county, but it's floating in the wrong direction. Um, so, so on day four, we, we walked, we did our first three days of 14 hours of walking. And when we woke up on, on the morning of day four and took a, a, a GPS bearing, we were further away from the pole than when we started <laughs> because the ice was going against us. Oh my goodness. So, so the North Pole and, and the North Pole, you go in um, April time and it's not too cold. It's about minus... 30 minus 25 minus 30 whereas the south pole is a continent antarctica is a continent and it has mountains effectively around the edge of it it's imagine it as a circular continent with mountains around the edge you have to go over the mountains onto the central plateau and the south pole is on the plateau but it's at 10,000 feet so what people don't realize is you're already at 10,000 feet but because the Earth's atmosphere squashes at the poles. It's the it's the equivalent of being at thirteen thousand feet. So you're already at what's that four thousand meters of altitude. And the cold was horrific. Our coldest day was minus sixty six zero centigrade. Wow. That's why I say it was really tough expedition. Yeah. Very very challenging. But you enjoyed it. Oh gosh, I love it. I love it. Amazing. absolutely love it i mean you know you, you you don't think about work you don't think about anything except survival and getting to the pole yeah um staying alive <laughs> staying alive sure um you know but not in a you know not in a boy's own heroic way you just focus on your kit and on your equipment and on on you know looking after your 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 buddy we buddy up to look after each other mm. um but yeah it's just a great adventure i love it no, I know you do. And, you know, I sort of look at your stuff and think, oh, I know how much it would feel so amazing to have done the things you've done. But to go through them, I'm not sure how <laughs> I feel about that, Kevin, you know. Um, which brings me nicely on to um, the really fabulous thing that you did, which I think was the thing I saw first about you, which I followed, which was your Atlantic Row. Um, yes. I need to talk about that because that's really fascinating there's a wonderful video i will try and find the link for it and i'm sure you'll have it and it's um i think it's like a summary of the race it was a race wasn't it it was a race yes oh my goodness you know i can feel myself so scared and i'm sitting at my kitchen bar you know <laughs> breakfast bar and so i want to know first thing is how the goodness did you actually get into doing that That's, is this to do with this same guy that you mentioned no 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 it was um so having climbed the mountains and having walked to the poles <laughs> i was actually thinking what's next and a friend of mine again a different friend of mine there's a guy called peter van ketz who's a south african adventurer and speaker and peter and i have spoken been on platforms together around the world. And Peter rode the Atlantic, firstly as a pair and then on his own, solo. And I was speaking to him about it. He said, Kev, you should do it. I said, Peter, I don't know anything about rowing. I don't know anything about the oceans. The thought of setting out in a 20 foot plastic rowing boat to row across the Atlantic. I said, you're bonkers. He said, you'll love it. 
and it kind of planted a seed that, that you know, it started to grow and it, it grew and grew and grew. And so I, I researched the race and what would it take and how do you go about it and <clears throat> what preparation you need. And then I was speaking at a conference. Um, it was at the uh, Monaco Yacht Club to three or 400 yachties. And I was talking about leadership and, and I, talk, I talk now about leadership, building great teams, building great companies um, and helping people, as I've said previously, to move on their business to the next level. And, and somebody said to me at the end, it's Q and A, what's your next adventure? And I said, well, I don't actually have one planned. I said, but I said, I really do fancy rowing across the Atlantic. Does anybody want to come with me? And of course you get 400 people who laugh and look the other way. Yeah, that'd be me. Oh yeah, oh yeah, well we won't be doing that. And so that was it, it was as much a throwaway comment. And then afterwards a guy came to me who'd been in the audience and he said, were you serious? I said, yeah, I am serious. And he said, well, I'd like to do it. He said, and I've got two mates who'd like to do it. And can we talk about it? And these guys are youngsters, they're in their twenties, you know, they're half my age. <laughs> and so I said, why would you want to do it with me? And they said, because we'll never get the project together. We've never done an expedition. We know we're not, we don't have the leadership to do it, to make it happen. But, you know, we're young and we're fit. And, and so we, we met and we interviewed each other. Um, and we decided, yeah, we're going to do it. And, and I said to my son, Matt, do you want to row the Atlantic? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, it's pain, pain and more pain. No. I said, OK, fair enough. And I'd asked him and asked him. So I put on social media, I've got my team. We're going across the Atlantic. The phone rang within 30 seconds. And it was Matt saying, what's this? I said, well, got a team. We're going across. He said, what about me? I said, Matt, I've been asking you. He said, well, it's real now. I want to come. Um, so, so suddenly he's in the team as well. And we spent 18 months building a boat learning how to navigate, learning electrical, learning sea safety, learning everything you need to know to cross 100 million square miles of water because that's what it is. And there's no support, there's no rescue. You know, if you're out there, you're out there, that's it. Um, and the boat is, you know, as big as two dining tables. And off we go. And so we set off on the 12th of December last year. Um, and Remember what I said about get better and bigger will come. At the beginning, I said to the guys, what's your objective? They said, we want to break the world record. And I said, well, hang on, hang on. <laughs> you know, I'm an old man. You want to break the world record, then let's row it together this time. You can all learn the ropes. We'll all learn the ropes. And then you young guys, you put yourself in a team and you go for it and break the world record. And they said, yeah, okay, we'll do that. But in my head, I was thinking, if we approach this thing like I would approach a business to be the best we can possibly be, then by the time we get to the ocean, we stand the best possible chance of, of achieving a good result. And so we worked really hard to train, to prepare, to prepare the boat. Nothing was left to chance. Everything on the boat was done. I mean, it took me a year here in my garden to get the boat ready to go. Um, so many jobs, you know, our checklist, I'll tell you now, our checklist 
before we hit the water to start rowing in Spain was 436 items. There's so many things to check because once you're in the ocean, that's it. You can't say, oh, whoops, I forgot the widget. <laughs> well, you've forgotten it then, haven't you? It's gone. Go back for that, exactly. <laughs> so we prepared really absolutely to the best of our ability. And we got, and, and I'm not, this is not meant to sound big headed, really not. But you have to be at the start line 10 days before the race. That's a stipulation. And some of the teams who weren't as fortunate as us in that they hadn't had the time, they were still beavering away on their boat. And, you know, we got there 10 days before we were bored because the boat was good to go. We were good to go. So we spent seven days going in the gym, sunbathing, swimming in the sea. And then in the last three days, just made sure everything was good to go. And then we went. And, um, you know, our, our motto was we will start as friends and we will end as friends because when you're going to go through that you know two months through the atlantic ocean in a boat where you are never more than three feet away from the next person never then the danger of small things becoming big things becoming a bus stop you know is a big danger and we'd heard of teams who finished the race and never spoke to each other again never again exactly so we said no we're not doing that and so we prepared well, we organized ourselves, and we hit the water in the best possible shape we could be. And actually, the organizers said, that's the best prepared boat we've ever seen. So that was nice to hear. We set off. First night, we got hit by a storm. It snapped two of our oars, carbon fiber oars snapped. Fortunately, we had two spare oars. Um, and so we replanned, reorganized understood what we got wrong in the storm. We got absolutely hammered. Um, and then we kept going. And we rode and we rode and we rode. We didn't even stop for Christmas Day. We didn't stop for Christmas lunch. We didn't stop for anything. On New Year's Day, we stopped for 20 minutes. And we, we opened some gifts that our families had packed for us. Um, and we'd taken a small bottle of whiskey. And said, anyone want whiskey? And I said, actually, no, <laughs> no. So, so the whiskey didn't ever get drunk. And then we rode again and we arrived in Antigua 36 days later, having set a new world record. So to our own surprise, our own surprise, we were told by the race organizers who, who of course are watching us by satellite, you, you know, you watched it online. Yeah. They told us about eight days out, you know, you guys are on for a new world record. And we said, really? And they said, yeah. So for that last eight days is when we thought about it yeah. and we, just rode our hearts out and broke the world record by 23 hours. So, oh my goodness. So, you actually smashed it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So, great result. Oh, it's honestly, Kevin. I mean, I know this could be a blooming day's worth of podcasts, couldn't it? With the stories <laughs> that you have. And I think I get a feeling from what I've read and watched and from your interviews that you might be writing another book. Is that right? I am writing another book, yeah. And, and it is about team building and, and I'll use some stories from the row. Yeah. I, I always use my adventure stories as illustrations oh, yeah. because the, the, the situations are usually so dramatic. You know, we, we turned that boat over in the middle of the Atlantic. It was upside down and we were out swimming. Yeah. And, you know, and what, what, was, what was amusing was once we got the boat up again, I mean, we're tied into the boats, right? So we, we can't get separated from the boat. Once we got it up again, we just laughed. 
we're, we're in waves 30 foot high and we're just laughing because, hey, why not? Nobody's going to come and help us. We've got to fix it. So I, I, what I talk about now in conferences and what I help people in their businesses with is understanding that no matter how difficult the situation you are in, there is a way out of it. And so let's understand what success looks like. Where is it we want to go to? Then let's build our plan. And the three, three stages I've used in the book, you've seen it's commit. Are we truly committed to what we want to achieve? Are we truly committed? Yeah, good. Connect, connect the plan. Do we have a plan to get us there? And then create. And the creation is the creation of magic. And the magic comes when as a team, you become super efficient, super functioning, and you have fun. And I always say, have fun. Commit, connect, create, build something extraordinary and have fun doing it. Yeah, amazing. So just to finish, because um, I don't want to finish. I really <laughs> don't want to finish because I've got so many things I could chat to you about. But one of the things that I did the other day was, I think maybe your book even inspired it, but I posted, I'd had a conversation with my son, Sam. He's 15 fabulously creative he now produces music that's his thing he's, he's wonderful I was chatting over dinner we're cooking together and I said right Sam what do you think success looks like because you know for me I struggle I always think that success is actually never attainable because when I do something well then I think of the next thing I can do so it's like this ever moving thing you know so it's almost like I don't reach it and then he said to me, yeah, but mom, look what you've done. And he lists all these things that he knows about me, my book, my TEDx, etc. You're already successful, mom, he says. It was so lovely. Anyway, I posted that on my LinkedIn and I, I posed the question to my followers, what does success look like to you? And we got such a wonderful breadth of conversation from it. So my last question, Kevin, to you, not in business, but to you personally, what does success look like for you? Success for me looks like being able to look back on my career and take pleasure and pride in seeing other people be successful and I've helped them. I've been part of their journey. So, so I enjoy watching other people be successful. And, and I'm changing my career now, moving out of, running businesses into coaching, mentoring, speaking. And it's so rewarding to help other people to be successful. So my success is looking back to say, look how I help them to be successful. Yeah. That's the fun of it. I love that. I think I am along those lines in how I feel. I get so much joy when I see someone being successful because I walked alongside them. Let's just yes. say you know, that's yeah. a nice way to look at it, isn't it? Yes. Been, um, you're massively inspiring to me. Um, I hope our listeners have felt the same. I, I definitely have so much more I would love to have a human conversation about with you. But if people want to connect with you, Kevin, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, well, they can go through my website, which is kevingaskell.com, uh, and that's got a messaging facility on, or find me on Instagram, or I don't much like Twitter. I, I find the politics a bit too heavy. But uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, I'm there talk to me yeah fabulous and and you can talk to kevin he is wonderful and he's very responsive <laughs> i just reached out i dared to dream and we've been able to not only um, exchange on the podcast but he's also read my book and i'm reading his book which is the other thing you must 
get this book, Inspired Leadership. It's really wonderful. Kevin, thank you for your time today. I've thank really you. our human conversation. And for the thank listeners, you. I hope you feel incredibly inspired. Follow Kevin, because if ever you're feeling like you can't dream or even dare to dream, you absolutely can. Just listen to some of his stories. Um, and if you're listening on any of the platforms, like and subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and SoundCloud. And you will also see this on YouTube so that you can see Kevin's lovely face. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us again on The Human Conversation. Ta-ta for now. You've just been listening to The Human Conversation podcast with Jules White. To find out more about the other work that Jules does, please visit her website, www.liveitloveitsellit.co.uk. And if you enjoyed the podcast, then please do leave a rating and review on the platform you use to enjoy her show. Thanks for listening and see you next time.